Welcome to Wednesdays with Winnie, the podcast that covers, well, quite a lot, from fallacies and grad parties to Aquinas, Aristotle, friendships, and even Subway cookies. My hope for you is that you can sit back, relax, learn a little, laugh a little, or a lot, and come away with a lot more knowledge. Without further ado, let's get into the episode. Good morning or good afternoon, whatever time it is where you are listening to this episode. At least I hope it is a good morning or whatever time it is. But if it is not, I hope that this podcast makes it a little better. Right now, it is currently one o'clock on this Wednesday morning that the podcast is being released, mainly because I'm a procrastinator and was very, very busy this past week, but we are still getting an episode out. Anyways, we I'm going to start with a public service announcement before we get into the meat and potatoes of the episode. And that public service announcement is Subway cookies. Yes, Subway cookies. If you have not had a Subway cookie, my one thing this week, if I'm going to tell you to do one thing other than read the Summa Theologica, but more on that later, it is eat a Subway cookie. I don't know what it is about Subway cookies, but oh my gosh, they are delicious, delicious, like the best cookies I have ever eaten, and I have eaten a lot of cookies in my life. There's something about them. I don't know what it is, but they're so, so good. They're really soft in the flavors, the raspberry cheesecake. Oh my gosh, and they just brought back the s'mores. And the nice thing about them is like everywhere has them. I live in a town with 2,000 people and we have a Subway. The only fast food restaurant we have is a Subway, which I am very thankful for because of the cookies. But they're not as, they're also not as big as some cookies. Like I love crumble cookies, but sometimes those cookies are just too large. I don't want a huge, huge 500 calorie cookie all the time. So Subway cookies eat a Subway cookie this week. Now, now that I have that covered, let's get into the meat and potatoes of this episode, which is Thomas Aquinas and the five proofs for the existence of God. This is definitely a more philosophy-heavy topic, so it will require a little more concentration. And for me, it is kind of tough. It's hard to understand at times, but... Let's start with a little bit of who Thomas Aquinas is. So Thomas Aquinas was a medieval philosopher and theologian, and he kind of pioneered medieval philosophy and the systematic organizing of philosophic principles in order to lead to a conclusion. And so he's kind of the father of that. And he was a Catholic theologian who authored the Summa Theologica, which was a book that covered a bunch of questions Christians had about God, like the existence of God, which we're going to talk about today. But honestly, there are so many 
important things in that book that I am so glad that I've had the chance to kind of read it and understand it a little better. And I want to just preface this by saying, even if you are not a Catholic or if you're a Protestant, this, the five proofs for the existence of God, are useful to any Christian because he shows how we can go about proving the existence of God. And no matter what, if you're Catholic or Protestant or whatever, a Chris, if you're a Christian, this is very necessary, especially in our day and age, to prove and be able to prove logically without necessarily using the Bible to prove the existence of God. And he does not rely on the Bible for any of these proofs. And while it is good to rely on the Bible for some things, especially when you're talking to atheists or maybe someone who does not treat the Bible as a sort of source of authority, having these proofs has been so helpful to me. All right, so the first, let's start off with the first proof or kind of, oh, actually, let's start off with explaining how, I'll start off by explaining how Thomas Aquinas kind of orders his arguments and proofs. So he starts by listing objections and I'm not going to get into the except, ex, uh, <laughs> the objections right now. But if you have a chance to read the Summa Theologica, while this episode is a great introduction, I would highly recommend taking the time to read the Summa Theologica, especially this part on the proofs. But he starts with objections to his argument and then asks questions and kind of explains and argues those objections. And then in the purpose for proving the existence of God, he has three sort of sections. The first being, is the proposition God exists self-evident? The second, is it demonstrable? Yes, I said that right. (laughs) And the third, does God exist? Which is what the five proofs are encompassed in. So we're going to start with the first proof. And the first argument is the argument of motion. So the first premise of this argument is in the world, it is evident to us that some things are in motion. We can see that some, some things are moving just naturally look, looking outside. And the second premise is things move or change when the possibility of their motion or change becomes a real motion. So things go from possibility to actuality and nothing can be reduced from this potentiality to actuality except by something already in motion. This is kind of hard to understand, so I'm going to give an example. For example, a piece of wood. The piece of wood has the potential to be hot, but it is not actually hot. On the other hand, fire, which is actually hot, makes wood, which is potentially hot, actually hot, and and thereby changes it. So this leads us to the conclusion that something in motion must be put into motion by another. For example, that fire had to be started by something. And there's this kind of chain link or chain of things that start and move and put things into motion, like Newton's laws of motion. And the fifth premise is, however, this cannot go on forever and ever, obviously, and therefore there has to be a first cause to set everything in motion into motion. This cause or mover, the first mover, is naturally God. So the first one is just kind of motion. 
And the second one is the argument from efficient causes, which is a little similar but also different. A lot of these you're going to notice are kind of similar and go back to that kind of cause and effect, which is a very big part of all of his arguments for the existence of God. So the inefficient cause is an agent that brings a thing into being or initiates a change. So it is evident that we can see efficient causes in the world. For example, a parent is the efficient cause of a child, at least the physical efficient cause of another human being. There is no known case in the world of something existing prior to itself or being the efficient cause of itself. There are no children that cause their own existence. Three, the third premise, is it is not possible for efficient causes to go on to infinity. For example, as Christians, we believe that the first people were Adam and Eve, and it is not possible. You cannot keep going Parents and children do not keep going forever and ever with no end. It had to start somewhere. The fourth premise is to take away the cause is to take away the effect. So if we took away Adam and Eve, there would be no humans. So if there is no cause, there's no effect, basically. Therefore, it is necessary to have something to create the first cause, and that thing is God. So it is necessary for something to cause Adam and Eve to be on this earth in order for all of the other causes that precede them, humans, throughout the ages to be in existence. And so that first cause, Thomas Aquinas comes to the conclusion that it is God, the first efficient cause. The third proof is possibility and necessity. So in nature, we find that things that there are things that are to be and not to be. And basically everything exists in contingency. And the, the word contingency kind of means it is possible that something could not exist. So if every being has the possibility of not existing, it is contingent, contingent, then at one time there could have been nothing in existence. Therefore, at that time, nothing existed. There would have been nothing to bring anything into existence. And therefore, nothing would be into existence. Some of these, I just take a moment and think about it, and my brain is like... I don't know. <laughs> I hope you guys are getting something out of this. But... This is absurd that nothing is, is, is in existence. Those are his exact words. Absurd. <laughs> because obviously we're in existence. You're listening to this podcast right now, so I sure hope you're in existence. But it is necessary. There must be exist something by whose existence is necessary. But every necessary thing has is uh, has its existence caused by another or it does not and is not in existence. So therefore, we cannot help but say that some being must have itself its own necessity and not receive it of a cause, but cause the necessity of the other beings to be in existence. And this cause is God.
So the fourth argument is the argument of gradation of being. Gradation can be defined as a range or a change of characteristics or a kind of variance of characteristics. So among beings, the first premise of this argument is that among beings, some are better than others and some are worse. So some are more good, more noble, more true, and some are more malicious, jealous, angry than others. The second premise is these predications and gradations have to be based off of something and comparing something to the ultimate. For example, something that is hotter is said to be so the closer it gets to that which is hottest. So something hot is said to be hotter the closer it gets to the hottest, which could be fire, for example. And the ultimate in any group is the cause of all those comparisons and gradations in the group. And he uses the, yeah, Thomas Aquinas also uses the example of fire. And that is the ultimate thing of hotness. Which, right now, that's not necessarily applicable because there are hotter things than fire that we know of now. But just the ultimate thing of hotness is said to be the thing which all others are compared to. Therefore, there must be an ultimate standard, which is the cause and case of ultimate virtue and perfection. And this relies a little more heavily on our knowledge of God. So he is saying that because there are things that are somewhat true, somewhat good, and somewhat beautiful, in order to term those things and describe them, there must be something from which they originated from and are compared to, which is the ultimate. And he is saying that that ultimate is God. And this predicates and goes back to viewing God through the Bible. And one thing that one problem, and I guess not problem I have with the argument, is that of fire. So when Thomas Aquinas used that example, fire was obviously the hottest thing that he could think of. So an argument that comes up against this is, so if God is the ultimate virtue, ultimate source of all virtue, truth, and goodness, what if we find something that we believe is more full of truth, virtue, and goodness? And that is a, that was a hard question for me. Someone once asked me that. And I think that it comes down to a little bit of faith, a little bit of faith in trusting that God is the ultimate truth, beauty, and goodness as is revealed to us in the Bible. And so this argument is a little harder if you're using it against an atheist simply because they don't view the Bible as a source of authority. But that is something I've kind of had to accept. There may not always be answers to every question we have, but as Christians, we are called to live with not only reason, which I know I am pretty bad at that. I rely a lot on reason and a little less on faith, but we are also required to have faith. We cannot know everything in this life, and so we have to trust God sometimes in who he says he is and what he reveals to us through the Bible. 
So just, I just wanted to put that out there to any of you who may be struggling with that or not, but that's kind of my journey and where it has led me and that acceptance has really helped my strength in belief and once I kind of accept that, I have a whole lot less questioning in my heart and it's a lot easier even though at times it's very hard for me to let that faith in and trust in God, but it also has been very, very helpful in my relationship with him. Anyways, <laughs> didn't think we were going to go go there, get into a more personal part of it. But the fifth argument and proof is the argument of design, which I really like this one. This one says, we see that from the beings in the world work towards an end. For example, animals. Animals work to reproduce and eat. And these beings, or even trees, trees re photosynthesize they produce fruit and they continue to drop seeds and grow more trees and trees you would not term a tree as an intelligent being but yet they still meet their ends they still continue to grow and populate the earth and so these natural things that lack intelligence they can't necessarily come up like a tree doesn't say, oh, I'm going to photosynthesize today and spread seeds and stuff. So therefore, Thomas Aquinas says that they must be designed by something with intelligence so as to reach their end. And therefore, something exists that directs those without intelligence towards their end because they couldn't naturally come to that if they don't have intelligence, so it would be hard for them to survive and reach that end of survival. So for example, the example he uses is that of an arrow. An arrow cannot shoot itself, an arrow cannot find a target itself, it needs an archer to do so. And that archer, in this analogy, is God. And so God directs those less intelligent beings towards their ends, which is proof because they are moving towards their ends and they lack the intelligence to do so, but they do have instincts that were designed in them, that that designer is God. And that is the fifth argument. I hope that I explained those well. I tried to do a lot of research, but reading the Summa Theologica, and I also feel like even explaining it has helped me to get a better grasp of it. And it is really such such a good work. I would highly recommend reading it. And that concludes the five proofs. This was a little bit of a shorter episode today. I, I never have like a certain time limit or time going into it. Probably not over an hour. But I thought it would be a little longer, but it didn't turn out to be. So that's okay. We'll just conclude with a Bible verse. So the Bible verse for this week is about worrying and anxiety. And can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? If then you are not able to do so small a thing as that, why do you worry about the rest? Luke 12, 25 through 26. And I've had this Bible verse in my car for a long time because this is something I struggle with a little bit of anxiety. And so having that reminder, thank you for the Bible. Thank you. Next week, actually, 
I am so, so excited about next week's episode. Next week, I am going to be interviewing and doing an interview with my best friend, Sophia McCracken, and we are going to talk a little bit about friendship, how to form lasting friendships that are centered around Christ, and also the five love languages and how that plays into friendships. So stay tuned for next week's episode. It is going to be a great one, and I will see you all next Wednesday. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wednesdays with Winnie. I would really appreciate it if you could leave a review on whatever platform you listen to the podcast on just to let me know how I'm doing. Anyways, God bless and see you next Wednesday.